With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. <laughs> I'm Chris Stashew. I'm Mike White. And this is Father Malone. And we are the hosts of Dreams for Sale, a once a month look at the Twilight Zone 1985, or as Father Malone calls it, the only Twilight Zone worth watching other than the original. On this episode, we are further venturing down into episodes of the second season. Those episodes would be five and six. Why are we covering two, you might ask? Well, all of a sudden, the show decided to throw us a 180. Not all of a sudden. We discussed it a little bit on the previous episode about how the show pretty much got canceled. Correct me if I'm wrong, Father Malone. Uh, it was canceled, no, moved around, some something. So all of these episodes are only 20 minutes, 24 minutes long. So we're going to treat this uh, similar in the way that we treat Chronicles from the Crypt, which is we're just going to start covering two episodes an episode of our show now. So buckle up, because I, I think this is going to be the way it is for a while, right? I think maybe until the end of the show. Oof. Pretty much, yeah. Boy. Go back to the hour-long format, really, other than occasionally. Yeah. Well, that is a that is a bummer, but on this episode, we're going to be talking about the Toys of Caliban and the Convict's Piano. So the Toys of Caliban aired... December 4th, 1986. This is directed by Thomas J. Wright, written by Terry Matz, and once again, George R.R. R. Martin. It stars Richard Mulligan, Anne Haney, and David Greenlee. And it is an episode about a mentally challenged boy who seems to be able to manifest items in front of him. Uh, I know we talked last episode about how this episode might be a little problematic. It does involve a mentally challenged character. If that's upsets you, just getting it out of the way now, because I'm sure we're, there's no way we can't talk about it. So, Mike, what did you think of the toys of Caliban? I mean, other than the way that the character was portrayed, which was slightly offensive, but not terrible... I actually like this. I like the idea of someone having a power that maybe wouldn't be able to use the power correctly. And I think it gets really nice and morbid towards the end of the episode. I really like how this thing ends up. Um, I think it might have been nice if we stayed on the outside a little bit more. Because there is a character who is an outsider, 
that sees what's going on with Mulligan and his wife and, and the kid and thinks that they're being horrible to this kid. I think if we came at it from her POV a little bit more, because we are right there with the family from the beginning, and so we're much more aware of what's going on than this side character is, and I think she should have been our foil for the story. But that's just my take on it. Father Malone. Uh, I'm going to echo that, actually, because at at the point where she finally arrives at the house to investigate in person, I had the exact same thought. We should have been following her from the get-go, because... Like the scene in the hospital where, you know, it looks like he's just the worst father on earth who's abusing his child. Like we know he's not, but it would have been nice to have a bit of ambiguity about what is actually going on here uh, for a Twilight Zone story. Uh, I agree with you on that. And, uh, you know, overall, I like this episode a lot as well. It reminded me uh, quite a bit of uh, It's a Good Life, the the original Twilight Zone episode with Bill Mummy, who's like, everyone is scared because he can wish anything into existence. Oh, yeah. And they're uh, kind of yeah, they're, they're at his mercy. Um, but I felt that this was a pretty worthy update of that story um, because the unpredictability of, of the threat was uh, a little better than, uh, than the, the, uh, that original episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, overall, it seemed a little weird. I mean, I looked up their ages afterwards, and those two actors were only in their mid-50s, Richard Mulligan and uh, what's her name? Anne Haney. Um, Anne Haney. But uh, I, I just remember thinking, like, Jesus Christ, they're like, they should be his grandparents. <laughs> like, and and if that had been the case, you know, it, it actually could have made the story a little bit better uh, in that maybe something really horrible happened to his parents. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, like, other than me pontificating about what could make the episode better, I'll, I'll, I will just say uh, I, I did like the episode. I, and, and as you said, Mike, like, the ending is kind of a gut punch, uh, which is uh, a deserved one. Uh, which sometimes this uh, iteration of the Twilight Zone can get into, and when it does, it seems to do it really well. So overall, I like this one. So I had actually made a joke on the last episode about not looking forward to this episode because I had watched the first couple minutes and I had seen David Greenlee's performance, which is, like you've said, Mike, it's not great. But I don't think there's any... I don't know. What do you guys think? There's no good way to approach this role. Uh Not maybe good, but like there's no way to approach this role without possibly stepping on a landmine that you just kind of have to step on. Yeah, I mean, some of my favorite characters and movies over the years have have been (sighs) around this subject. I mean, I absolutely loved uh, what was it the Lenny character from um, uh, L.A. Law you know it's just or Benny I sorry, you were going to say of Mice and Men I was like no, I know who no. Lenny I know who Lenny is but I don't think you're talking about that and you know it, it, I grew up on stuff like this like uh, like normal people with um, uh, what was Sean that Cassidy guy? Sean Cassidy thank you I mean there was a point at some point it became bad, and I'm not sure when that was. It was still okay with like Mickey Rooney playing Bill, but once you got to my sister, my other sister, the uh, the Rosie O'Donnell portrayal, yeah. that's that's when things started getting pretty rough. So this this makes it under the uh, the line for me. I'm I'm still okay with this performance. Yeah, I I, I I'm with you. It's it's I'm not gonna rag on it for. It's portrayal of someone who's mentally challenged. It's just, I I don't know, he's kind of overdoing it, which is fine. You want to overdo it, fine. Outside of that, this is a brutal episode. I mean, straight up, 
This is in the top five of the episodes that I've watched of this show. Probably in the top five of any anthology show I've ever seen. Primarily due to how fucking brutal the ending is. Because it is so brutal, I didn't see it coming until... I mean, I... I'm sitting here in my office watching this episode. My wife is sitting on the other side of the kind of this monitors for me. And I let out an audible. Oh, holy fucking shit. Is this where this is going? I mean, I was shocked. I know that I tend to be the one who gets, you know, things put past them and that's fine. But man, I didn't see the ending coming to your point, Mike or Father Malone. They don't look like his parents. They look like his grandparents. But I will tell you, seeing Richard Mulligan again in this show is a welcome is welcome because he was good in Night of the Meek and he's good here. He's even better here. But then again, the character he's playing in this episode, I think, has a lot more depth to him than drunken guy who becomes Santa Claus. Yeah, 100%. I, I completely agree with that. And once he says the story about the puppy, then it's just like, oh, fuck, we are in for a ride now. And then when he wishes his mom back, oh, and it was it's just, just horrific. Awful. Oh, you know what they say? I heard a character in a film once said, sometimes dead is better. I mean, it's kind of like they have their own pet cemetery inside of their house. Oh, yeah. With this kid. It's look, I was looking and looking and looking after I watched it because I was like, there's no way that this story wasn't done in the first original run of the show. Nope. This is an original episode. Yeah. And it's shocking how good this is, given how kind of lackluster everything we've seen up until this point in season two has been. This is just a, this is brutal. And I, I'm here for it. I loved it. I loved it a lot more than the last thing I watched George R. R. Martin write for this show. And man, just everything about it is so good. I almost, this is one of these things where I'm like, you just need to go watch this. It's on YouTube in its entirety. And I am so curious to hear how the audience feels about it because this either this is an episode you love or maybe you're just completely turned off by how dark it gets because it gets pitch black there at the end. Yeah, it's pretty dark from the get go. I mean, when you imagine these people's lives uh, trapped in this house, like, you know, this kid's caretaker effectively, like it doesn't, it, it starts bad and gets worse and then somehow gets worse than that. I mean, they blow themselves up at the end. It's, it's, I didn't even see that coming. Uh, I just, I'll be a nitpicking asshole now uh, and just say, when you have this kid who can see a picture and uh, make it manifest uh, physically and they haven't given him pictures of like, say, bundles of cash so that they can move out of this fucking hovel that they're in and maybe be on an estate somewhere where they can like tend to this uh, child's obvious gifts. Um, that, you know, I, <laughs> they, they needn't have done that necessarily, but like, you know, they, they, they made it so that, you know, they, the, the kid, uh, bases what he's going to, uh, make appear on, on photographs. So why wouldn't they go there? And, uh, the other thing is like, you know, they, they were obviously like leaning into the fact that the kid is no longer needs the picture. He can just make it happen now. Like he wants that donut. He knows what the donut looks like. He's going to get it. So uh, maybe the uh, let's look at this fire together at the end is the, the best possible outcome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. It would have been, I mean, I probably would have approached it a little differently too, as far as the, uh, you know, let, let's let 
be someplace like a big, big old white room someplace. Let's have a big white room where you can put the kid and he doesn't look at anything <laughs> in order to manifest. Yeah. It was so funny at the end when uh, there's just that little tea towel that's been hiding all those books. And the kid's just like, whoa, hey, look at all these books. And it's like, you couldn't see him behind the tea towel, huh? Okay, that's all right. <laughs> Yeah, and why? Why at this point in their lives do they even have books in their house? There should have been yeah. no pictorial evidence anywhere. <laughs> yeah, the logic is a little tenuous. Just by a little, I mean a lot. <laughs> but so, if they gave the kid a Spider-Man comic and he manifested Spider-Man, would he just get the corpse of Peter Parker in his house? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or it might be the clone. I'm not sure. Yeah, it would be. It would be Scarlet Spider, actually. It would be yeah. Ben. Oh, what the hell is the character's name? Ben Riley. That's who it would yes. be. Yes. Good. I. Good uh, yeah. I. I don't look. I, I think it's a testament to the quality of this episode that the three of us were able to suspend disbelief because, like you just pointed out, Father Malone, like this episode is holding on with tenuous threads <laughs> that at any moment could swing loose. But they don't because I think those I I think it's something about Richard Mulligan and Anne Haney's performance that just it draws you in and it does not let go. And Haney is one of those actresses where even when she was 50 years old, my God, did she always seem like she was so much older than she was. She just always seemed so frail. I was shocked that she was not in her 70s in this in this particular part. Mm-hmm. I figured Mulligan was probably in his 60s, but she was definitely in her 70s. And it turns out they were both around 55. So I don't know what that says about the aging process these days where people are looking better and <laughs> better. But, <laughs> but to oh be God. fair, doesn't David Greenlee kind of also not look like a kid? <laughs> every, every, it's, what's weird is everyone in this segment looks older than they should be. And yeah, because I, I, they're somehow older than they should that, be, maybe it kind of works. But if David Greenlee, if the Toby character were played by a child, it would stick out like a sore thumb. This is just, this seems to me like Toby is like a, Toby is not a child. He's like an adult, right? Yeah. That's he's like a. Uh, and chi- child protective services would not show up for that's anyone on, over the age of 18. And that's that's what sort of clinched to me because I kept going back and forth too. It's like, is this kid like in his 20s? Like, does that explain the age difference? Like they've had him forever because the kid obviously seems like he's in his 20s. But no, they sort of specifically made him still a child. So I think having a child play the, uh, the part probably would have been in the best interest of it instead of a, a 20-something actor. Yeah, I was getting very heavy uh, Tom Cullen feelings from it. Laws, yes. But I think, you know, outside of the, the kind of the obvious issues, if you look at this for way too long, I, this, is a, this is a wild experience that needs to be, if you're a fan of this kind of show, of Twilight Zone, this is right in the wheelhouse, like you mentioned, Mike, of the original episodes. And not only is it in that wheelhouse, this story transcends time and space. As far as I'm concerned, you could watch this today, yesterday, 10 years from now. I think it still has that same gut punch it did in 86 when it initially aired. Yeah. And, you know, as nitpicky as I'm being, like, I'm, I'm only able to do that in hindsight. It is the perfect length, just a, a, a bite-sized uh, morsel of a story. So uh, those thoughts necessarily are, are, aren't necessarily going to, uh, to uh, enter your mind until uh, long after. So, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, overall, I think it's a huge win. So let's talk about the final segment of this episode, The Convict's Piano. So The Convict's Piano is 
directed by Thomas J. Wright, written by Patrice Messina and James Crocker. It stars Joe Penny as Ricky Frost, a wrongly convicted piano player who's in jail, and he plays a magical piano, and he goes back in time, or forward, or sideways. It's not very clear. Yeah, I think it's I think it's almost always back unless he was playing something contemporary. So, like, had yeah. they brought him out, like, you know, the Barbra Streisand songbook, and he started playing something from 86, 87, okay, then he'd be, you know, moving somewhere outside of the prison in contemporary times. But having your Scott Joplin's, your, uh, you know, your other standards, he manages to, to move back in time. So what did you think of this one, Mike? I actually really like this. Um, it made me really wonder why I know Joe Penny's face so well. He is super familiar. And I looked him up and I was like, okay, yeah, I've probably have seen him in a bunch of stuff, but it feels like there's something that I'm missing out on. Maybe it was like Jake and the Fat Man or something where it's like, I know I saw him a bunch when I was growing up. And I am still kind of curious about the Norman Fell character like, how much is he in on this whole thing? Does he realize that this is a magical piano that he's having Joe Penny play? But I did really like how the powers work and then how it kind of got transferred. And that the guy who done um, done him wrong, done Norman Fell wrong, ends up getting his comeuppance all these years later. So it's kind of a nice little uh, way that the, the story ended for me. So I, I dug this. It felt very classic uh twilight zone to me what'd you think father malone i i'm gonna echo that entirely yeah definitely like a like a really great episode of the old series um uh, a good episode for this iteration of the series uh i i liked it a lot too always welcome to see norman fell not playing mr roper yes uh <laughs> you know an actor with range who sort of got uh, pigeonholed there for a while um and I did like that conceit at the end when, uh, because I, I, you know, we're talking in the last episode, you didn't see that ending coming. I didn't see this ending coming. And I did find while I was watching the episode wondering, like, well, how is he going to do this? Because if he stops playing the piano, he's automatically going to be returned. So it not only did they come up with a clever way to keep him in that time, but uh, as you said, Mike, they, they were able to sort of bring the, uh, the, the B character's uh, antagonist forward. Uh, so he can exact revenge on him. I think he'd do a little more than just punch the guy. I think that there would be a long, slow killing of that man. But um, I think uh, uh, overall, I really enjoyed the episode. It was, uh, you know, for for the fact that it is in prison and has shanking and threats of violence in every direction, it actually felt like a more gentle episode of The Twilight Zone than we've seen <laughs> in a while. I can see that. How about you, Chris? I have nothing bad to say about this episode, similarly to the last one, for the most part. I mean, we did some minor nitpicking on that one, and I think we'll do some minor nitpicking on this one. But I'm shocked at how good this is, given how kind of basic the premise is. The premise is not doing anything particularly new or interesting. I feel like I've seen this in other shows with us, not maybe like with a piano, but it's one of those like, I'm brought back in time. And then the other I'm stuck here and the other person goes back and takes my place. Like we've seen that before in other things. But like you mentioned, Mike, I don't know where I've seen Joe Penny from before. Almost nothing. Apparently, when I looked at his IMDb, I couldn't pick out a single thing. He just has that look to him. He's great. It's an interesting premise. I think the twist at the end is is good enough to stand withstand the rest of the episode. And I think it works. I like it. 
I don't know. There's not there's not much wrong with it, frankly. It's just kind of a nice it's what I would say is a nice little episode of this show. Uh-huh. It's not expected to do much. It's frankly not asked to do much. And it doesn't need to to be successful. And yeah, I would think that Norman fell at the end would probably slit that guy's throat. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just me. And if it had been me seeing the guy who got me incarcerated, I would probably want to murder him. So given that that guy's been in jail for God knows how long. so Over 50 years, he says. Yeah. So and that's just 50. I mean, it could be 50. You know, yeah. I do wish Joe Penny had said, why don't you come and just play these notes with me? Right. <laughs> so so he could go back with him. But, uh, you know, other than that, a fine episode. I liked, you know, it, it, movies in the from the – since there have been movies and matchbooks, matchbooks have always been used, like, you know, as a little clue or a plot device or something. And it always bugs me. I, I don't know. It always feels sort of false and uh, – uh, a little too easy in most cases, but I liked the idea that he used this sort of matchbook to uh, to prove that he had been in the past in this one. For some reason, that tickled me. Yeah, I liked nice. it. Yeah, it's everything about this feels like Patris Messina knew kind of the pitfalls to navigate because this could have fallen into just like maudlin saccharine bullshit with oh, him talking God, about yes. his girlfriend that was murdered, that he didn't know about. They barely even touch on it. For all we know, the Joe Penny character could have murdered his girlfriend. We're made to believe that he didn't. But, I mean, they could have delved into that and pulled some really just kind of like drawn out nonsense that benefited no one, especially not Joe Penny. But this this episode moves at a pretty good clip, too. He goes back in time, what, three or four times? Yeah, yeah. I think three altogether. Usually that's the magic number for these episodes, right? You go yeah. back once, you stop playing, oh, uh, okay, and then you go back again. He he does the thing with the beer, drinks the beer, and he's like, oh, hey, all right, this is cool. And then he goes to wipe his mouth, and he's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. at least three or four. You're right. There might have been another time in there, but before he uh, ended up, getting the guy to play the piano for him, which he didn't even really think of. The guy was just such a blowhard, which I appreciated. Yeah, that was, that's what I, that's probably my favorite thing about this episode is the twist isn't the character moving the twist forward. It's another character just being like, I'm a dick, dude, 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 and goodbye. And it's like, that's great. Like, that's a perfect way because that, as far as I'm concerned, that is Twilight Zone. If he had gotten him to play the piano, I don't know how you feel about this, Father Malone, that's Tales from the Crypt. It's that, like, it's that specific action you take to intentionally fuck someone over seems more Tales from the Crypt revenge-based. This is, like, Twilight Zone has always been, like, it's just the cosmic ether doing it, and it's just the way of the universe. And I love that, because that guy's just a dick. He just goes and sits down at the piano, and he plays, and he disappears. And no one even thinks anything of it. Dude just disappears. (laughs) Like, okay, sure, why not? He's gone. Bye. Well, they were probably all happy he was gone. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that well, that his his girlfriend is right. She's like, oh, he's gone. Whatever. Bye. Yeah, um, I I do agree. Yeah, you're right. If uh, Joe Penny's character had been uh, had had conceived the plot to get this guy back and him remain there, then it definitely would have been more tales from the crypt. Uh, it, the, and so often in the Twilight Zone, you just said, uh, Chris, like you know, the, the episodes. What's usually at work is just the cosmic uh, forces working against you in the Twilight Zone, and. Usually when they do one where the cosmic forces end up working in your favor, it is so treacly 
that uh, you know you can hardly stand it. So it was nice that they found a balance here where it was just like likable characters in a bad situation, and then everyone sort of gets what they want, uh, and it didn't feel too saccharine or sentimental. Um, so yeah, a couple really good ones. My only complaint with this segment is: Are we really meant to believe that Norman Fell would scare off some skinheads? Come on. Well, you know, Red's been around the prison for. Oh wait. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, right. Come on now. It's just it's funny, like Norman Fell showing up scaring off the skinheads just to me is hilarious. Get on out of here, skinheads. This is an old man. You could kill him and no one would bat an eye. What are you what are you skinheads doing? Was one of the skinheads a little person? I think so. Okay. Cause like, when they when they when they try and confront him in the uh, in the piano room, yeah, because like there was a, a behind the shoulder shot, over the shoulder shot, and I was like Okay, either that guy is like standing on a different field or plane, or he's a little person. But I couldn't really like I didn't see the the shot before the reverse shot. Well, all I know is that one skinhead just looked really intimidating, and by really intimidating, I mean not intimidating at all. It's <laughs> like really squirrely looking bald guy from Central Casting. <laughs> So on the next episode of Dreams for Sale, we're going to be taking a look at episode seven, The Road Less Traveled, and then we're moving on to the way that CBS decided to air the show from now on, which is two half-hour shows aired back-to-back. So we're going to be covering episode eight as well, which is The Card and The Junction. So until then, where can people find you, Father Malone? You can check me out at fathermalone.com. Uh, I got links to uh, everything I'm sort of working on, particularly my podcast, Dark Destinations. It's a, a half-hour radio drama. Um, and you can also hear me over on Chronicles from the Crypt, which Chris and I do about the HBO television series Tales from the Crypt. What about you, Mike? As always, you can find me over at projectionboothpodcast.com, where I'm doing a weekly podcast all about the movies. And as for me, you can find me on a couple other podcasts that I do with these guys. Mike and I do a Barney Miller podcast together. Father Malone and I do a Chronicles from the Crypt or Tales from the Crypt podcast together. And we all come here to do this podcast. So it's kind of like, a, you know, it's a meeting of the minds in a way. You can find me on Twitter at Christmas Claus. Big thanks, as always, to Roxy Drive and Neutron Dreams for the music for the episode. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.